I invite you to pray with me. Gracious and loving God, as we continue our service of worship together, we pray that we might continue to hear a word from you today. That during this time after your resurrection, that we might be formed and shaped into your image in the world, the body of Christ, the church. And we pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God. Amen. Amen. Well, this is another one of our weeks coming to a close here. We have two more in our series about The Church Is Not. Traditionally, within the liturgical calendar of the year, the season after Easter is the time when we focus on the church, because it's the time when Jesus hands to the disciples the task of being God's love in the world, the incarnation of God's presence here with us that we celebrate at Christmas, we also live out in our daily lives. And that's call is to be the church. And we talked about how the church is not a place, but the church is us, the people, and how it's not a service or a show, but it's something that we go out. And during this time, we've been talking a little bit about it. And you may not have caught it. You may have just caught one or two of the sermons in there. We invite you to go back. But we've been talking about the balance of what it means to be a disciple, which of course the disciple is the idea of the church. The church is the group of people that follow Jesus that come together to worship, to love one another, and to serve. And so today's scripture reading and today's sermon is titled, well, the sermon is titled, and you know, kind of following the scripture, the church is not self-serving. And, and this is uh, a pretty obvious one if you read some of the passages that Jesus has in his, you know, throughout the gospels, is that over and over again, Jesus has a primary concern for himself and for God's people. And that primary concern is for the least of these. In fact, there's an entire book, and I've mentioned it before. It's called uh, Politics of Jesus by John Howard Yoder. And, it, and it's a, a formative book that was written in the mid-20th century. And, and that book talks about how Jesus emphasizes care for those that are poor and marginalized. And over and over again in Scripture, Jesus finds himself seated with the woman at the well. He finds himself stopping amidst the giant crowd because someone had touched his, a woman had touched his cloak just to be healed. The people that found themselves as kind of the outcasts of society were welcomed by Jesus, not just with miracles, but with time and care and love. And today's scripture is one of the last things, the last things that Jesus has to say to his disciples. And in that, we could go into all sorts of debates about, you know, heaven and hell and punishment and some of those things. But I don't think that the point that Jesus was trying to make there was to outline how you get in or don't get into heaven. I think the point that Jesus was trying to make within this last statement is something that he had tried to make over and over again in his ministry. And that is serve others. That the church is a church that loves God. First, God loves us. And then we give our love back to God. The church is a place that's open doors and open hearts that we welcome one another in Christian fellowship. But the church ought to never stop being the place that just worships and just loves one another, but that we go and we 
serve. Uh, I had a mentor of mine when I was going through the ordination process that said, the more and more I'm convinced of, or more and more I go in my faith, I'm convinced of one fact, that the cross symbolizes our Christian journey. You have God with us and kind of us with one another, but then we must continue to go out to extend that love and to be that love in the world. And without the combination of the two, we fall short of Jesus and his teachings. And so when I say that the church is not self-serving, that ought to be a self-evident thing for many of us. That many of us value mission, one of our kind of driving forces as our church, Ohana, is when we do our food drives or our our back-to-school opportunities or when we rally each other and we say, what's a primary thing? If I were to do a survey, what's one of the primary things that we ought to do as the church? One of the things that always comes up is the church ought to serve, that the church ought to serve. The thing is, though, is that sometimes we fall into a perception that we're doing things and that the primary focus is not primary all the time. And I'm not trying to say that for us, but I'm just trying to say that sometimes we need a refresher to remind ourselves of the value. And just to kind of pull us in a little bit, Corner, did you have those pictures up that I sent to you? All right, just to pull us, this is a Mother's Day opportunity for us that sometimes what we perceive to be happening isn't always the reality of what's happening. So um, there's a Pew research that was done in 2001, or 2021 during the pandemic, and the title of it was Men and Women Have Different Perceptions on Who Does More at Home. Did you know that? Did you know that this is it? So here's some of the things. This is just fun, lighthearted stuff. And so the first one is household chores. What do you got first? You have household chores? So the first one is household chores, and you have women does more. 34% of men said women do more, but 59% of women knew the reality of that situation was that they do more chores and responsibilities. 20% of men think that they do more, and then 46% thought they do it equally while only 34% of women thought it was equal, right? You know, it just wasn't there. But next is managing household finances. The um, 23% of men said that they do that more. 47% of women know that they do that more. And then 50%, uh, oh, sorry, 23% that women do it more. And then 50% of men say that they do it more, where only 25% of women say that men do it more. And then... Kind of equal on the the equal side. All right, managing their children's schedule and activities. Mothers out there, how how does that work at your house with your So we have 55% of fathers say that they do that more, where 74% of women know the reality that they are the primary. We did a a church survey back in a bigger church in North Carolina, and we were doing it for communications, right? And so we were trying to say, how do we communicate most effectively to people? And we had a consultant kind of come in to help us with that. And she made us do personas because we want to really like, how do you, like, what are the avenues and what are they looking for? And we actually didn't have any men in the personas. It was only women because we knew that the women were the ones that primarily were like tracking what was going on for vacation Bible school and all that. And I know this is generalization, men out there, that there are some of us that do things differently. But perception is not always the same as reality. Perception is not always the same. And the last one is being an involved parent. So 
Fathers think that 30% of them are, do that, take that responsibility more. And then 54% of women say that women do it. And then uh, you can kind of see that the men think that they do more at the end. 63% of them say it's equal. And then 43% of women say it's not. I share this just a little bit because, I one, I talk about the perception that sometimes, you know, men, we've gotten better, I think, you know, we've tried to do better, but our perception is not always there with reality. And some of our women of our lives will know that. And women, I, I share this with you because I, I want to kind of celebrate something that by nature, many of you have embodied for all of us as mothers and women in our lives. And that's that church is not self-serving. Because women from out the beginning of the Bible have served God and God's people and embodied that more. And sometimes one of the things that men are really good at throughout history is watching something go well and then taking it over. <laughs> and like, you know, like the, they now have taken ownership of that. For, take, for example, this season, Eastertide, when we talk about the resurrection of the Lord. Who was the first one to announce the resurrection of the Lord? The women that came, right? Who was the one who stood by Jesus' side as he died on the cross? The women that were there with them. And women of faith have led us throughout this ministry, but if you talk about the church fathers and mothers, throughout the history of the church, we tend to not focus on the mother's side of it. Name one woman saint in your mind that you can think of that's not Mother Teresa. <laughs> and you might be able to say, name one male saint within there. But there is a whole slew of women that have led us throughout. The Apostle Paul would be nowhere if it wasn't for this purple dye industry fabric maker named Lydia, who was really the social counterpart for Paul, introducing him to all the different people of her circles. That throughout the history of the church, as we've served, it's been the women that have led us. And, you know, one of the things uh, that in the United Methodist Church, I think I remind us is that, you know, sometimes we can get so focused on, you know, worship and being together and celebrating and potlucks that the primary doesn't become quite as primary as it has in our past. And, some, and in church uh, leadership, one of the things that we're always concerned about, right, you know, is we want to make sure that we have enough to keep our congregations alive and vibrant. And, you know, the tendency there is to, like, look at what the other church is doing and try to do it better or the same. And, you know, one of the things that you see is, like, you know, we'll try to get the lights and the cameras and do all the things that the other churches are doing because they're getting more people in the pews. And so you can just sometimes fall into this temptation as a church leader that's just about getting people to worship and to fellowship because people like fun events and people like big crowds and people like to gather. And so you can focus on that and forget what's primary sometimes. And I was sitting in a meeting in North Carolina with a number of other pastors and our bishop that was there who often visits with us, Bishop Hope Morgan Ward. Her daughter lives in Hawaii. Tangent, but she's often here with us. But one of the things that he was taught, this consultant was talking about, because it was church growth and revitalization. And as we were talking together, he said, you know, you may not feel it, but some of the mega churches, the attractional model churches, the seeker churches, the churches that are trying to get the people that have that like fun experience and just get more and more are plateauing. 
And in fact, the newer generation of people are not as inclined to do that because of issues of hypocrisy, of social justice stances, and you know, all sorts of other things. And, and in fact, they're looking for a place that has a different sort of focus. And you already said to all these Methodist pastors that are trying our best to like, you know, grow our churches and often envious of these other megachurches, your denomination has the history to connect to those younger generations. Your denomination has been at the front lines of social justice causes and mission throughout the beginning of its movements. And the more that we as United Methodists can press into what has been primary for us, the more we can connect to people. So I want to, just for a minute, one of the things that I'm really adamant about is spreading good news. And we talk about when people join the church, you join through your service, your gifts. Oh, well, I did it in the wrong order. Your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness. People often cringe at the witness. In fact, our hymnal doesn't even have the witness because it was added on later. And we've been talking about how we don't like as Methodists to be evangelical, which is to share the good news. But I want to share good news, kind of like how this consultant did with us Methodist pastors. And how many of you know the history of Mother's Day? Have you read about it? When it started? Okay, Quinn is going to play a video for us. It's like uh, three and a half minutes long about the start of the, this day, Mother's Day. Quinn, I want you to play that for us. when uh, Ann Jarvis was working to establish Mother's Day as a national event, and when her daughter picked up the mantle from her, they were not thinking about um, greeting cards and flowers. Instead, the Methodist women who invented the idea in America wanted to honor mothers in a deeper way. Uh, They were thinking about the work of women and the significant uh, testimony that women could give about the need for peace. Anne Reeves Jarvis organized women's clubs in the 1860s to serve suffering mothers and children. Women came together with their sisters in their locations uh, to respond to the needs that they could see. For Anne, she was in a coal mining part of what is now West Virginia, and uh, she could see the needs of women and children, and she could see the effects of the economy of her day on the people that she cared for. She started mother's clubs and she taught them about hydration for fevered babies, about sanitation and nutrition. Then the Civil War came along and they put a field hospital right outside Grafton. Anne recruited nurses for military hospitals and after the war formed friendship clubs to promote reconciliation. Anne Jarvis uh, was convinced that mothers, women, but especially mothers, had to work for peace because they could see the ravages of war in their husbands and in their sons in a way that uh, was so focused and so clear that uh, their voices would be uh, powerful. And that's what's at the genesis of the current Mother's Day. Faith was always foremost. When she was older, Anne Jarvis and her daughter Anna became members of Philadelphia's St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church. The daughter Anna became a Sunday school teacher here at 
at St. George's, but she's best known for the efforts she made to get Mother's Day recognized as a national observance. She and John Wanamaker, who was a famous retailer here, were the ones that got Woodrow Wilson to sign the petition. Ann Jarvis died in 1905, before an official holiday was in place. But her daughter Anna, who was never a mother herself, stayed true to the purpose of the celebration. She envisioned Mother's Day as a time to write a personal letter to your mother, a time to send her an inexpensive carnation, a flower in which the petals hold tight like a mother's love, and a time to visit or attend church together. She later became an outspoken critic when the special day turned too commercial. She was really aggravated at people that turned that observation into a commercial outlet. So she had a lot to say to Hallmark. She had a lot to say to the Salvation Army that started selling carnations. When she made carnations the symbol of Mother's Day, they sold for pennies. But their price soon went up to $1.50, $2 a piece because people found they could make money off of it. And her, her comments about Hallmark are just wonderful. She said, how lazy can you be to buy somebody else's sentiment to hand to your mother? Like one day out of the year, sit down and tell your mother what you really think of her. And she was just furious. And I, I just, I like, love that kind of spunk. She would have been a really interesting person to know. And I like telling the kids about her because it, the history of the church isn't a history of ministers. It's the people that make up the church. And I think there's such a wonderful example of that. And, and besides, you know, making kids think about their mothers is always a, a good thing to do. <laughs> so now when you go out and you celebrate Mother's Day, you can tell someone as a way of witnessing, did you know if you find yourself a person called Methodist, that Mother's Day began by a United Methodist woman who is seeking to care for those and bring reconciliation to those during Civil War. Our history together as the church is a history filled with service. If you come to one of the talk about, Sunday, or talk about membership Sundays and we talk about it and you have some questions about what the Methodist church is, I would definitely begin, talk about how we started by starting so many churches, uh, sorry, so many schools throughout the 19th century and hospitals as well. And, and this was indicative of it. If some of you remember the groups, United Methodist Women, right? And now they call women of faith. And so the United Methodist Women were at the beginning of all of that, leading the church. And not just leading the church, but leading the nation, the, the suffrage movement, the women's suffrage, or the labor laws in the United States were helped pushed forward by women. In 1908, we adopted the United Methodist Church, a statement that was first crafted by the United Methodist women. And this is now still to this day in a book that we call the Book of Resolutions. It's one of the ways that we govern ourselves. I want to read this as kind of what was primary to us in 1908. The Methodist Episcopal Church stands for equal rights and complete justice for all people in all stations of life, for the principle of consolation and arbitration and industrial decessions, for the protection of the worker from dangerous machinery, occupational disease, injustices, and mortality, for the abolition of child labor, 
For such regulation of the condition of labor for women as shall safeguard the physical and moral health of the community for the suppression of the sweating system, for the gradual and reasonable reduction of hours of labor to the lowest practical point with, all, with work for all, and for the degree of leisure for all, which is condition of the highest human life, for a release from employment one day in seven, for a living wage in every industry, for the highest wage that each industry can afford and for the most equitable division of, produ of products of industry that can ultimately be devised. For the recognition of the golden rule and the mind of Christ as the supreme law of society and the sure remedy for all social ills. Our heritage, not just in the United Methodist Church, but through the church, it has all sorts of ups and downs. What is the church? But the church at its best is a church that serves others and is called to do that. The women of our lives, women of history, have led us in that, and we celebrate that history. And I share all of this with you on a Sunday morning because I want to remind us of that role so that we can remember the leadership. It's not just about the lays that we carry, and it's not just about being privileged enough to be able to have kids of your own biologically. That it's about serving others and drawing people into a community of love and respect, and a community where all have their basic needs cared for. Jesus calls us to care for the basic needs, to give water to the thirsty, food to the hungry, clothes to the naked, to visit the sick and in prison. That's our call, and the women of our lives and our church history have led us in that. And so when we talk about what is the church, at its best, we love God, we love one another, but absolutely and always, we go out and we serve the vulnerable, the poor, those that need the essentials in their lives. And friends, if you don't know anything about the Methodist Church, that's okay. I gave you a little Methodist Church history. And friends, if you were born and raised in the Methodist Church, I gave you a little Methodist Church history. Our DNA as a denomination has been one of serving in areas of compassion and justice. In fact, John and Charles Wesley, when they talked about the theology behind it, they talked about how we have works of piety where we're like growing individually in our faith. But that is never alone, that we're always going out to pursue social holiness. And there's a famous phrase, there's no personal holiness without social holiness as well. That we're all growing to be better versions of ourselves and better human beings on this globe. So women, thank you for leading us in that. But let us not stop with just remembering. Let us go out and let's be the hands and feet. Let's be the ones that clothe the naked, that feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty. I invite you to pray with me.
Holy and gracious God, we thank you for remembering our history. And that as much easy as it is to remember our conflicts and our arguments and our poor decisions as the people who call themselves the church, we also remember and celebrate the ways that we've gone out and we've served establishing schools and orphanages and hospitals. Help us continue to live into the strong heritage of the men and the many, many women that have gone before us, that we might follow in their footsteps and embody your love in the world so that all might find the love that comes from the shelter of your wing. Amen.